team, thank you for leading us. The singing church, what a joy to sing with you today. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as your word is preached, we would recognize it for what it is, the word of man, the word of God, which is at work in those who believe. And we pray that, Father, that this preaching of your word would be just that. Your word working. Oh, how we need your word to work in our lives. How we need your word to work in our church. We pray that as we hear your word, we not return void. And all the ways that we need to be convicted, Father, we pray that your word would convict our hearts of sin to help us grow in Christ's likeness. And all of the ways that our hearts need encouragement to keep stumbling forward, to keep repenting, to keep loving, to keep being selfless, that you would help us by your word. All for your glory and our joy in Christ's name. Amen. The Republican convention in 1880 took 36 ballots to elect a presidential candidate. Former President Ulysses S. Grant gathered over 300 votes, 34 ballots in a row. But he could not secure the majority, 378. Along the way, James Garfield had received one vote on this ballot two votes on the next ballot, one vote on the next ballot for 34 ballots. And somewhere in the afternoon, a supporter of James Garfield came to him and said, General, he had been a Civil War general, General, they are talking about nominating you. To which Garfield replied in dismay, I know it, I know it, and they will ruin me. I am going to vote for Sherman, John Sherman. And I will be loyal to him. My name must not be used. Regardless, in the 35th ballot, his name went from one vote to 17 votes. When Garfield heard that his name, when he heard it reported that his name had been received, his name had received 17 votes, he stood up in the Republican convention and said, I rise to a question of order. I challenge the correctness of the announcement. The announcement contains votes for me. No man has a right without the consent of the person voted for to announce that person's name and vote for him in this convention. Such consent I have not given. The chairman cut Garfield off, gaveled him out of order, and told him to take his seat. Then came the 36th ballot. Garfield went from 17 votes in the 35th ballot to 399 votes, becoming the Republican candidate for president by 20 votes. It was reported that he was shocked and sickened, that he was pale. Quote, this was reported in the news in his hotel room, he was pale as death. His response to a delegate from Maine was simply, I'm sorry that this has become necessary. He would, of course, be elected the 20th president of the United States in 1881. Well, you might not recognize it, but that's called humility. Not wanting to put your name forward in prestige or in significance. And so much as Christmas is about Christ. It is a matter of humility through and through. The Son of God being found, as we read, in human form. That's Christmas in, Ephesians, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in human form. Just like our country could use a good dose of Garfield's humility 
There is never a moment of crisis in our personal lives or our families or our church when one of the greatest struggles that will define us and our relationship to God and to one another is that of the humility in our own chest and our relationship to everyone who is around us. In this Advent season, we look at Christ who more than became president, was born king. So we sing in the carol, King at thy birth. When the wise men traveled to find Jesus, they searched for the newborn king. They already knew he was king the day that he was born. And what is remarkable about this king? What is attractive about this king? Shocking! This king is the very son of God. And in him was incomparable humility. Humility. Today as we begin Advent season, taking time off of our normal preaching schedule, we're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ and the meaning of His coming and His life and His death and resurrection in the next few weeks. Over the years, I have kind of myself shifted back and forth between kind of curmudgeonness about Christmas and over-sentimentality. I love that we do this during Christmas. We take time to focus on the coming of Christ, looking at Him, which in one sense is not all that different than what we do week to week in every passage of Scripture, but it affords a particular focus on Himself and His character. Today, to look at the humility of Christ, we're going to do three things. First, we're going to look at a portrait of pride in the Bible. A portrait of pride in the Bible. Next, we will look at the humility of Christ. A portrait of pride and then we'll compare it to the humility of Christ. And lastly, we'll look at our call to humility. Our own call to humility. First, a portrait of pride. The Bible is filled with men and women who offer us character portraits. Their lives are vivid pictures for us to get a sense of what righteousness means, and what evil looks like, what pride looks like, and what humility looks like. And one of those men who offers us a portrait of pride is a man by the name of Adonijah. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings. This has been fresh on my mind, this particular portrait, because we've been studying 1 Kings on Wednesday nights and Fridays. If you're interested in just going to a Bible study with other men, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock here at the church, and Friday at 12 o'clock, both going through 1 Kings chapter by chapter, you are more than welcome to come join us. Wednesday at 7, Friday at 12. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we meet a man named Adonijah. 1 Kings spans from about 957 B.C. when Solomon built the temple all the way, in 2 Kings, to 586 when the temple was destroyed. 1 Kings begins with the time when the great king David is dying. David, the great lion and bear slayer, the giant slayer, is now feeble and weak. Can't even stay warm. Now God has promised David that his son Solomon would reign as king. This was a word the Lord had given Solomon. First Chronicles records this. But David's fourth son, Adonijah, thought that he should be king. First Chronicles chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but First Chronicles 3 lists the sons of David, the prominent sons of David anyway. His first son was Abnon, who was killed by his younger brother Absalom. Second son is named Caleb, or some would call him Daniel, we don't really know much about that second son. We really don't hear anything about his life. Most commentators would say that means he probably died young. Otherwise, we would have some record of his life. Third son was Absalom, a wicked, wicked man who was killed for his rebellion against his father, David. And then there's the fourth son, Adonijah. Likely the oldest living son 
when David is dying. Solomon was born much later. At the time David was dying, Adonijah was likely the oldest living, and Solomon was probably in his 20s, young 20s maybe even. In fact, before his death, David made preparations for the temple because David said, quote, Solomon is young and inexperienced. And if I die, well, he's going to need some things set up in order to build the temple. The king is dying. Solomon is young and inexperienced. So the oldest son, Adonijah, makes a run on the throne. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. We're just going to look at two verses really quickly. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Now, David, dying in his bed, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done this or though or so? He was also very, a very handsome man. And he was born next after Absalom. You know, reference to suggest He's the oldest living son. Now, this is not only history for us. This is how much of the Old Testament narratives work. These are character portraits for us to see what good and evil look like impersonated in people. Think about the character portrait here. What does it say about him? First of all, he exalted himself. You see that in verse 5? Adonijah exalted himself. God did not exalt him to the throne, which is how David got there. David did not exalt this son to the throne. He took it upon himself to sit himself on a pedestal. He looked up at the throne and he decided, I'll take that, I'll have that. He also gathered men and resources around himself. Verse 5, he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. He was not even king yet. He wasn't on the throne. He didn't have any authority to gather things to himself. But he begins to act like a king anyway. I'll get some chariots, I'll get some horses, and I'll, and I'll put them around me. He just presumes his authority and his kingship before he's king. Next it says, his father never displeased him. It just literally means his father never pained him emotionally. Essentially, Adonijah's father never told him no. This is a man who thought he deserved everything that he had, whose every whim of his heart was simply enabled by parental neglect. Let me just take a side note really quickly. Fathers, your kids and your own exhaustion may tell you that you are failing because your children are emotionally pained by your discipline and your guidance. And I would say, look at Adonijah. And don't believe that lie. It's not good. It is good to tell your children no. That is not the entirety of parenting. But to be forming and shaping and encouraging and guiding. But it is good for our children to bump into our authority. Sons and daughters. If you have a father who does not simply roll over and, and cave every time you want something. Thank God. Thank God for that. You have a father who is not controlled by you, a mother who is not over, overbeared by you, but trying their best, maybe failing in some ways, but trying their best to guide you toward God and righteousness. Thank God. Because that wasn't Adonijah. Part of his portrait of pride is that he was never checked on, never checked, never told no. He was also very handsome. He was also very handsome. This matters. The world values good-looking people. It doesn't matter how much we try to suggest the opposite, culturally speaking, that we don't care about looks. Society keeps telling us we really do. We really do. We care a lot about it. Now, some of what, what it means to be good-looking can be subjective. I, for one, personally, would like to see more of the values of the African Bodhi tribe come to America. In the Bodhi tribe, the bigger your stomach is, the more attractive you are. I think we could use a little of that. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm thinking about doing missions in Bodhi tribe in Africa, just for that reason. I was listening to a history of assassination of John, uh, JFK last week or two weeks ago. It was the 60th anniversary of his 
his death and assassination. It was interesting. How did JFK become president? Well, there were a lot of things that led to him becoming president. One of them was he was really good looking. He looked good in a suit. Women were attracted to him. He looked good behind a podium. He spoke well. He was a handsome man. That helped him a lot. Well, that was Adonijah. He was very handsome. First Kings portrays it as a detriment to him. Being handsome was actually a part of what made him proud. Well, what did all of these things converge into for Adonijah? A run on the Father's throne. A run on God's throne. David isn't even dead. And Adonijah is saying, I will be king. And Adonijah's pride eventually led to his death. When Solomon would see him make another run on the throne in a couple of chapters, to what might have looked like a small request, and in some ways ended up proving this man still wants to be king, and Solomon had him killed in order to establish himself as God's king on the throne. I hope you can see how ugly this is, and even more how evil this is. This is pride. This is present in some sense in each and every single one of us. And it is running rampant in our society as well. Self-exaltation. No one tells me no. Beauty gets power. I will be king. And Jesus could not be more opposite. Look at the humility of Christ. See the portrait of pride of one of many in the Bible. And see the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ is selfless, costly obedience. Selfless, costly obedience. Look at Philippians chapter 2, what Megan read for us. Look there in the middle, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Who Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now what does this mean? The word duolos means slave. We only ever think of slavery as something that you would only ever do if you were forced into it. And that's part of what makes it so wicked, at least in our nation's history. Slavery is a forced thing. Jesus took on the form of a servant. This is hard to get at, but he's not just doing servant things while his heart despises his master. He became a servant. His morphe, his very essence, was servant. And Jesus said of himself in the Gospel, Mark, the Son of Man came. That is, he was born. That is Christmas. He came to the earth. He, he found Himself in the form of a man. Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Look at that phrase in Philippians chapter 2.6. He did not count being equal with God a thing to be grasped. He did not count being equal or equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Now, two things this doesn't mean. This does not mean that Jesus did not consider Himself to be God. That He did not know that He was God. He claimed to be God over and over and eventually was killed by the chief priests and the Pharisees because they knew Jesus is claiming, He's calling Himself the Son of God. He's saying that He's coming in the white clouds like Daniel 7. He's claiming to be equal with God. That's why he, they killed Him. So when Jesus did this, it's not saying He didn't think that He was equal to God. No, He knew that. He knew that. This also does not mean that Jesus did not have access to God's power. That He could not exercise divine power. Jesus did this over and over and over in order to show He is not just a man, He's God. 
He spoke and the waves stopped. He spoke and a girl was raised from the dead. He prayed and bread fed 5,000 people. What does it mean that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? It means that instead of seizing, grasping with His hands, His divine place on the earth, He took a position lower of service and servitude. He got down low. He didn't unbecome God. He didn't lose His power. He took a place of service among men. He willingly, willingly denied Himself the use, not the access, but certain uses of His divine power and authority in order to live as a servant. It's like when Aslan went to the stone table and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. The witch howled and laughed at what she called the foolish lion because he had come to die for Peter. But what did Lewis write about the girls who had secretly followed and watched? Lewis said, Lucy and Susan held their breaths waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. And not because he couldn't, because he wouldn't. It's like when Jesus was going to the cross and told his disciple Peter, don't you know I could call 10,000 angels to save me right now? No, instead, one angel came to minister to him in the Garden of Gethsemane toward the cross. Jesus had all the power to destroy all of his enemies. Instead, he used all his strength to die for them, serve them. There on the cross, Jesus, Jews yelled at him, He is the Son of God, and he cannot even save himself. But it was never that he couldn't. It was only that he wouldn't. In this way, he was humble. This is Jesus' humility. He did not consider divinity a thing to be, to be grabbed and thwarted and used or something to save himself from the cross, but instead humbled himself. Instead, he was serving others. He was selfless. He took on a form of selflessness where I am here to save others. I will lay down my life rather than grasp my divinity in order to save it. He was selfless. Jesus' humility is also costly. Costly. Look what it says in verse 8. He did not consider his divinity a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8. He went in obedience to die to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility led Jesus to die. He died a planned, painful, and prolonged death on the cross. Where is the point that your humility stops? Jesus' humility went to the point of death, even death on the cross. Kids, maybe sometimes you don't mind cleaning up the house, cleaning up a bit, because you know that if you do, you can play games or you can have a snack. But there might come a time when your parents will say, okay, next, we need to do the dishes. Okay, then we're going to be doing the laundry. And there comes a point where your service heart is severely tested. Or maybe for you it's a project at work. Everyone is excited at first. Everyone is pitching in. Everyone's emailing on time. Everyone's doing their job. But then one day you find yourself either being the one who has come to the point of service on this project, or you find everyone else around you has come to their point of service. It's just you. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. And look at the extent of his humility. Paul adds the point of death. 
But he adds the extent of that death, even death on a cross. The extent of Jesus' humility is not just death, but a kind of death. A place of death. An experience of dying. All the way even to death, even death on a cross. A cross. Jesus' humility led Him to die on a cross. The cross is the measure of Jesus' humility. It was ugly suffering. It was not pleasant It wasn't pretty. He got beat up, spat on, crowned with thorns, nails in his hands, nails in his feet, propped up so that he could be kept alive longer to elongate his suffering while he was without clothes, without water on his tongue. He was hung between two thieves, lowlifes, humiliated. The Romans mocked him. The Jews hated him. His disciples abandoned him. Instead of privately being taken away and shot by a firing squad, he was raised up publicly to be mocked and slowly suffocate in front of everyone. Because how you die on a cross is your body finally runs out of strength to lift your own self up and take another breath and bear your own weight at the same time. This is why they would mercifully come and break the legs of those who were hanging on crosses because they would finally be unable to bear their own weight. When they came to break Jesus' legs, they found He'd already breathed His last. This is the picture of Paul when he says, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the point, the extent of Jesus' humility. He humbled Himself that far. And all of this because Jesus was conquered? Because Jesus messed up? Because Jesus deserved it? No, none of these things. What did it say there in verse 8? By becoming obedient, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Jesus did not humble Himself by becoming humble. Just kind of being a really humble guy. He humbled Himself by... How did He humble Himself? By becoming obedient. It was not a feeling or a sense of humility. It wasn't just a matter of Jesus was feeling really generous that day. He obeyed and obeyed and obeyed. Jesus' humility is obedience, and obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was obedience that led him there. Became a servant. He obeyed all the way till the very obedience that you are doing kills you. That's Jesus' humility. Who was Jesus obeying? Not the disciples, not Rome, not the Jews, his own heavenly Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before His crucifixion, Jesus had prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That is Jesus' humility. Selfless, costly obedience. He obeyed. He put Himself in obedience to His Father. His humility is the Gospel for us. His humility is the Gospel for us. Jesus obediently died on the cross. Why? Was it because Jesus just wanted to be really humble and set an example for us? No, that's not the extent of it. He had to go to the point of death because the point of death is what we deserve for our sin. The extent of His humility is the extent of our hubris. The extent of His humility and His obedience, His selfly, costly crucifixion, was to pay the extent of the wages of our sin. He went as far as our sin deserves. Our sin deserves death. Our sin deserves separation from God. Our sin deserves hell and wrath. And we deserve what Jesus endured because of our pride. Every single sin we ever, ever commit is ultimately prideful. Not my way, not your way, God, my way. Our disobedience to God deserves death. Our abuse of others deserves death. Our lying deserves death. 
Our selfishness and greed deserve death. Our cheating deserves death. Our gossip deserves death. Friends, only through faith in Jesus' death for us can we be saved from the wages of our sin. Can we be saved to the point of what we deserve? Eternal death apart from God. If you're here and you've never considered these things, what Jesus really means in the Bible and in history, this is it. His humility for you. That He went to the cross to save you from your sins. This is the message of the whole Bible. We have sinned against God in our pride, and God has sent His Son to die for us and raise from the dead that our sins might be paid for. And it's humility. Jesus' great humility that took Him there for us. He did not consider His divinity a thing to be grasped, but humbled Himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you might be saved. This is Jesus' humility. The Gospel, ultimately, is Jesus' humility. That's the good news, that Jesus humbled Himself, did not consider His divinity a thing to be grasped, but went obediently to the cross. Well, we've seen a portrait of pride. That's the humility of Christ. Consider how this is a call to humility for us. Consider our own call to humility. As we look at Christmas, we we at our own house, we have a nativity scene, one certain place every year, and another nativity scene comes out just on Christmas Day on our kitchen table. Or is he so many scenes of Christ's birth in the, in the manger, even here at our own church? Are we thinking about humility? That, that that one found in human form, that Son of God, divine, died for our sins, and that the call to follow him is also our call to humility. Not only thankfulness for his humility, but a call to humility. I just want you to think for a minute about your own heart and mind. Why, why sometimes, we ought to ask ourselves, why am I, why is my own heart so unruly? Why do I feel like I'm striving and fighting and twisted up? All my motives are competing and my ambitions are stirring inside myself, not just in the world, but in myself. Consider you are bumping into a question of humility in your own life. If you feel like you are bumping into a ceiling of maturity as a Christian, consider that the way to grow is to actually get lower. Become a servant. Sometimes we get so confused about what God's doing in our lives. God, what are you doing? What's, what's going on? Why, is this, why are these things happening? But you could be sure that if God is going to make us more like Christ, which is His plan in Ephesians chapter 4.11, that if that's His plan to make us more like Christ, then God will put things in our lives to help us become lower. And notice our own pride. And notice our own arrogance. Notice our own significance in and of ourselves. God wants the followers of His Son to be like Him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, just know that that's what God wants to do in your life. Don't be confused by God's purposes in every trial, in every difficulty, in every conflict with people around you. God wants you to be humble. That's what He's doing. And humility for Jesus was willingness to suffer unjustly. If you're going to be humble, you might find yourself suffering unjustly. You might take what is unfair for the sake of being righteous. You might find yourself following in Christ's way where being more humble leads you to pay more cost, not less. The more humble you are, the more cost you might find yourself pay. Humility led Jesus toward more pain, not less pain. Humility led Jesus to full obedience to God, not less obedience to God. Not self-rule or self-determination, not looking in my own heart to guide my life, but obeying the Father. 
humility in Jesus' life looked on the worst, the most immature, the most sinful, and says, I will go to suffer for you. I will serve you with my suffering, serve you with my life and my death. Rather than, I don't have anything to give you, you ought to be serving me. Humility is not self-exalting. Perhaps one of your struggles you've been experiencing lately in your Christian walk is that deep down you don't want to pay the cost of being a servant. You're bumping into the cost of actually living a humble life. You don't want to go to the cross. Main question for us often, and I include myself, I think this way sometimes, I, we do this without even realizing it. The main question is not, Lord, what is your will? But Lord, is this going to hurt? And if the answer is yes, well, that can't be right. That doesn't make any sense. But that's the path of humility for Christ. Oh, I've said this so many times in marriage counseling and with other brothers. But the Lord just uses some of those normal means to reveal selfishness in our lives. When Colette and I started dating, I just thought everything was wonderful and easy and great. And until it wasn't, and she broke up with me. But I'll be happy to talk with you about that after the service. Wonderful life lessons there when you talk about humility. I realized when we got engaged that there was a lot of things to do for marriage. A lot of things to do for the wedding. And that really wasn't too much about me. I started to realize some of my own selfishness. And then we got married. And my selfishness started to be exposed more and more. It made our marriage difficult at times. And then we had children. And my selfishness was ripped open for all to see. And I denied it. I didn't want to admit it. I didn't want to say it was that. That's what it was. Being a pastor, it just reveals selfishness. I just think the Lord over and over will give us things in our lives that if we will look, the Lord is saying, I'm trying to root up selfishness. Layer by layer and year by year. So don't be confused by what the Lord is doing. This is what he wants to do. I think this is sometimes what he wants to do in a church. Church, the Lord would love to uproot every, every small life-sucking root of humility or selfishness in our church and in place of a heart of humility. Might this be what the Lord is doing in our church? Friends, we have not come to maturity in Christ's likeness until we are humble. How can we become humble? How do we grow in humility? Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. What in the world would ever make you start thinking like that? What in the world would ever make us become more humble like Jesus? Look what he says in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's an interesting phrase. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is how you become more humble like Christ. You have the mind of Christ in your head. You have to be converted in mind. Out with your sinful, selfish, wicked ways of humility, quote-unquote humility, where you continue to say, I'm humble, I know I'm humble, I think I'm humble, I'm pretty humble. I have a shirt, I love to wear it. It gets a comment every time I wear it. It just says, Texas, colon, the most humble state. And people hate it. And they love to hate it. And I love to wear it. Not that kind of self-aware humility, but a self-forgetfulness humility. That's my mind. I don't even think about myself. I'm growing and looking at Christ and getting His mind and the way He thought. A humility that comes from faith in Christ and unity with Christ by looking at Jesus. And my, my base 
operation in the world is I am a sinner. And Jesus humbled Himself to the point of obedience to death, even death on a cross for me. The more I think the Gospel and remember the Gospel and read the Gospel and sing the Gospel, my mind thinks the Gospel. It's mine in Christ Jesus. It's His mind that I need. Have the mind of Christ among yourselves. Let this be the collective thinking in the church. Having put your faith in Christ, practice and grow your mind becoming more like Christ. A couple of practical ways that we can live this out and do this. Paul says there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I know this might like fail expositional preaching. We're going backwards here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, friends, just make that your rule. Make that your goal. To be like Christ. That you do nothing. You don't protect some things for selfish ambition. And this is the things that coming home every day as a father to children revealed in me. I do all these things that are not out of selfishness, that are not out of conceit about myself. But then there's just a couple things. That I, just, I just want them for myself. Just, just give it to me. Just give me that. Just, just, just give me one night from 7 to 9 p.m. with no yelling. Just give me that. No selfish ambition. None. Instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, this is what humility looks like in your life. It's not really a feeling that you have in your chest, but a relationship that you have with other people. Humility does not just describe an individual. Humility cannot just describe an individual. Humility describes an individual's relationship with someone else. Are you tracking with that? You can't just be humble alone. Humility is a relationship that you have with others. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what humility does. It doesn't just sit at home. Humility looks at others and thinks they are superior. I think of them as higher. I am the servant in this dynamic. I will serve. I will put myself low. I'll go down to their feet and I'll wash Friends, we have not come to maturity or Christ-likeness until we look at the lowest person in the church, the lowest person in the world, even our enemies, and the most sinful, and say, I'll serve you. I'll serve you. Friends, if you're a member of the church, you might have been in a meeting recently for us. We had a vote. Some people won the vote. Some people lost the vote. This is how congregationalism goes, by the way. This is how plurality of elders goes. Steve and John and Cal and other elders over the years have seen me lose a lot of votes. Praise God. I just want you to be careful. Even if you're in the majority that wins a vote, be careful. You might be the person most prone to exalt yourself and look down on others. All the people who voted against you, all that, that minority... And if you lose a vote, consider that might be the very opportunity you have to show Christ's humility to serve others. There are so many subtle ways for pride and self-service and self-significance to creep in. Church, we ought to sound like an orchestra in an echo chamber. One another considering each other more significant than ourselves. We ought to nearly be fighting. We are so insistent that each other is more significant. Romans 12, verse 16 says very simply to the church, Paul says, do not be haughty. Be big and too good for anyone in the church. Associate with the lowly. Spend time with the lowly. Call the lowly. Sit with the lowly. Visit the lowly. Do Bible study with the lowly. Serve the lowly. Sit by the lowly. Serve them. Associate with them. I see that in our church in so many ways. And I praise God for it. May God give us more of it. Consider others more significant than yourself is one command. But the other example for us is obedience. Learn Jesus' commands that you may obey Him. 
This might be too broad to feel practical, but just think for a minute. List the commands that Jesus has given you. List them. How many can you write down? How many can you recall? How many do you love? Three? Five? Ten? What does Jesus command of us? What does God command of us? This was Jesus' humility. He humbled himself by obedience. I remember years ago coming across a book by John Piper titled, What Jesus Demands of the World. I opened it up, curious, thinking, I never really heard someone talk like that. I didn't think really Jesus didn't, I didn't really think he demanded much from the world. I thought he was coming to just give himself to the world. No demands. Isn't that grace? Well, I was dismayed. I opened up the book to find it was 50 chapters long with a command for each chapter. And the premise of the book is this. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 28, All authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and baptize, make disciples, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? The last words. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I'm with you to the end of the age. And the whole book is saying, Jesus said if you want to follow him, come humble yourself to obey all of his commands and teach each other all of his commands. You cannot be humble and disobey. You cannot be humble and say, God's commands and Jesus' commands for me don't matter. I have the gospel. That's not humble. That's proud. That's not submission to Jesus. To take a single command from Scripture and say, well, I have a better way. I'll do it on my own. Or disregard it. Or not like it. Learn Jesus' commands that you may obey them. That book, What Jesus Demands of the World, it's free online. Just type it in, John Piper, What Jesus Demands of the World. It's free. It's a PDF. You can go read it. And I'll just tell you right now, get ready for your own pride to be exposed. It's a 400-page book. All about commands from Jesus. Now I listen to that and I think, I don't have 400 pages of humility in me right now, I don't think. It just seems like so much. But isn't that revealing? Read the last three chapters today. Maybe you're looking for something shorter. Read the last three chapters of chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. The first half of Ephesians is largely the doctrine of salvation, how we come to be saved, and what it means to be a Christian. The last three chapters, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, list commands. There are a lot of imperatives, how to live, what to do, to live up to the calling to which we've been called. Or read Romans chapter 12 through 16. Just read Romans 12 through 16 and just list the commands. What are we commanded to do? List them. Maybe Colossians, if you're looking for a really short version, Colossians 3 and 4. Just two chapters. Colossians 3 and 4. And what are the commands? What are we told to do to be careful that we are following Jesus? Maybe you would study the meaning of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Compare the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 with how Jesus uses them in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. Go read Exodus 20. Go read Matthew 5 through 7. Friends, this is why at this church we want to continue to hammer and pound and beat the drum of discipleship over and over and over. One of the ways we show humility and live in the humility of Christ is coming to submit ourselves to the commands of Jesus. All of them. The ones about membership. The ones about forgiving one another. The ones about discipline. The ones about gathering. The ones about how we worship and why we worship this way and don't worship this way. All the commands of Jesus we are to follow. And discipleship is, is a whole life of saying, I'm going to put myself underneath Jesus so I can learn from Him. Learn from His Word alongside with other brothers and sisters. Why go to life group week after week after week? Why join a small group for discipleship? For humility's sake. Be humble. Go learn commands. Go learn what God's Word has to say. Why go to our building blocks on Sunday mornings? Why go to your building block on evangelism? 
So that you can be a good evangelist? Well, yeah, in part, yeah, so you can grow in that. But partly because it's humble. It's a humble thing to do. I should be learning. I should be growing. I need help. All discipleship is ultimately an exercise in humility. Friends, consider what God wants with Millwood Baptist Church today. Every church, as ours, has critical questions to answer about the circumstances that they're in and their future. What does 2024 hold for Millwood? In all things, humility. Humility. Humility or not Christ. Look at chapter 2 in Philippians. See how Paul finishes. Chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, 8 through 11. Being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Father. Every knee, heaven and earth, will come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because God has exalted him because he humbled himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for the gospel. Pray that it might have its intended effect for each of us today. You know our hearts. You know the things we're wrestling with. Temptations in front of us. Our lows, our highs. I pray that you help, help us not believe the press about ourselves. Humble ourselves. Consider ourselves less significant than others. Learn to obey Jesus' commands that we might be as Him. Humbling ourselves by obeying. And all that to bring you glory. All that for the glory of Jesus to be more and more and more exalted. We pray that it might be so. For your glory and our joy in Christ's name. Amen.